welcome to this month's episode of Women in Foreign Policy. I am Annika. I am a graduate student studying conflict in Geneva, Switzerland. And I'm Ashley. I'm a foreign policy professional working in D.C. You're listening to the monthly podcast of the Women in Foreign Policy organization, where each month, Annika and I discuss a different topic in foreign policy and hear from women working on that issue. This month, we're talking about international cooperation and how that manifests specifically in the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. I do not work in STEM. And I have to say, I found the interviews for this month's episode so compelling and so fascinating. And so I'm really excited for many of you who maybe are not as familiar with this sector or this field to be exposed and to hear this conversation, particularly when it comes to the STEM field, which has a reputation for being a bit more sexist than other fields. So there's a lot of good conversations about gender. There are a lot of good conversations about how these women found the paths that they are on. So let's dive in. I really enjoyed getting to hear from the women we talked to this month and getting to hear about how they experienced the STEM field as women specifically, as well as how STEM and foreign policy intersect for them and how these fields that we think of as being very disparate and distinct in two totally different worlds are actually deeply intertwined. So without further ado, let's let these women introduce themselves. Hi there, my name is Amy Smithson. I'm a political scientist by discipline who has spent the entirety of my career surrounded by what we call hard scientists, chemists, microbiologists, physicists, engineers, and I've spent a career trying to make peace and reduce the threats to soldiers and civilians alike. Hi, my name is Alice, um, and I recently finished my master's at the London School of Economics in Global Population Health. Um, and finish an internship with the World Health Organization. Um, and my background is in microbiology and immunology. Hi, my name is Bonnie Jenkins. I am a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. And even more importantly, I am the founder and executive director of an organization called Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. Um, and my background, really, my ex- area of expertise is in weapons of mass destruction, nonproliferation, and arms control. That is chemical, biological, nuclear, uh, radiological issues, nonproliferation issues. And I also have a background on threat reduction, which is ensuring that bad actors do not get access to biopathogens or chemical precursors or nuclear material or radiological material that can be used to make a weapon. Hi, I'm Claire. I am an experimental particle physicist. I am uh, working at a German laboratory called DESI. That means Deutsches Synchrotron. And it's a particle physics lab. And within this lab, I am part of the ATLAS collaboration. This is a, a detector named ATLAS, which is not in Germany. It's in Geneva. It's uh, actually at the Large Hadron Collider, which is a big experiment near uh, Geneva underground, where particles are accelerated and they collide at the center of this detector atlas. And uh, what I'm involved in is uh, data analysis. So the the data collected by this detector, I am analyzing them along with many others of my other team. 
To kick things off, we wanted to know a pretty simple thing from these women. What exactly do you do? And how do STEM and foreign policy intersect in your field? Amy starts us off. What I do is try to bridge the gap often between the worlds of policy and science. And I do that in a subject field that is weapons of mass destruction. Initially, I worked with nuclear nonproliferation and threat reduction on the intermediate range nuclear forces treaties, nuclear test treaties, strategic arms reduction treaties. Uh, I did that in a classified environment as a defense contractor. Alice also had thoughts on this question. I think foreign policy can really aid women working in STEM in facilitating, um, I guess, access to education in STEM and then also access to opportunities within STEM. And I see that as a role of policy particularly is to kind of shape the the norms and the standards so that women can be on equal footing in a, a traditionally very male-dominated industry like STEM. Bonnie shared her background with us. The area that I work on is very much populated by science. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm talking about, you know, there's a lot of nuclear physicists and um, biologists and uh, chemical engineers and, you know, other people with those kind of specialties who get into the field of nonproliferation because they want to do something related to public policy. So you have a lot of, for example, biologists who could have done something that's related just to biology, pure science in their, the rest of their lives, but they decide that they want to do something related to um, public issues. They want to work for the government. And so that's good for people like me who don't have that kind of a background, but whose work is obviously in the areas of science. So when you're talking about um, nuclear weapons, it's good to understand how nuclear weapons are made. It's good to understand um, some basic things about um, nuclear technology, um, which I can I can kind of get after all these years. Um, and I surround myself with people who have a science background because I need that because they're the experts. So, um, so I, so I've been around people with that, with those kind of backgrounds, and we always need the scientists in the field that I work in because they are the experts. But I'm also able to do my job, which has been diplomacy, which has been, you know, uh, treaty negotiations, um, based on what I can do, but having the science around me who can inform me on things like that. Finally. We heard from Claire about how STEM and foreign policy intersect in her experience. Particle physics, in a sense, has absolutely nothing to do in the sense that's just how particles interact, how matter is done, and it's completely unrelated to human beings. This is fundamental research. Nature doesn't depend on us, on our mood, and the laws of physics are the laws of physics. But then there is the field in itself with human beings gathering to do science. And this is uh, perhaps where foreign policy is uh, present here. I am on my first uh, postdoc. So uh, I basically started in the collaboration in 2010. So it's been eight years. Most of them spent as a student during my PhD. I prefer setting up this context in the sense that uh, I, I am not having decades in the field to judge, right? But I would say that the, the physics that we do 
it's, it's not um, biased by uh, whoever we are. When we talk in the room about how we calibrate the energy of the electrons, um, they can be a Pakistani and an Indian in the room, they can be an Israeli and a Palestinian, they can be a US guy and a German guy. It could be some people coming from the upper class of their country. They can be some people coming from the lower bottom of uh, their country. And this is not uh, playing a role. They will just talk about how we calibrate the energy of an electron. Um, this is beautiful. This is beautiful, but it's not... Uh, they're, I would not say that this is completely ideal. So um, uh, some things to be improved, etc. Definitely, it's pretty nice to realize how unifying physics is and how diverse we are. And I meet almost every month uh, new people in my field, because as I mentioned, it's a very big one. So definitely, I would say it has an impact because then we are knowing people from many nationalities, uh, many ethnicities, many uh, sexual orientations and all these things. So growing up in a very diverse and international collaboration is helping each one of us, each member, to actually be more open-minded about things because we have before all a human being in front of us rather than someone from whoever, from whatever community or so. So we are an international collaboration because there are many institutions teaming up because the scope of the experiment is so large that we need to gather all and, and be numerous and, uh, and, and united. I am not a STEM person. I don't work in any of the fields that make up the acronym. And I was really interested to hear from these incredible women how they got from high school or college or some of them a military career into the particular fields that they are in today. First off, we're going to hear from Alice, who describes the path she took to get here. So I started my bachelor's in microbiology and immunology because I've been quite interested in public health. Um, and for me, it was a really interesting degree where I could combine um, kind of the more hard sciences with kind of a broader understanding of public health. Um, and from there, I did quite a lot of clinical research um, in pediatric rheumatology, so at a children's hospital, as well as the Center for Disease Control. So within that, like within health sciences, as well as the hospital sector, it is much more female-dominated, I would say, in STEM. Um, but I think when it, go, when it comes to the microbiology labs, it's a, a bit more male-dominated. Um, and from there, I, I really wanted to kind of go more into public health coming out of my bachelor's. And so that was where I um, found myself taking up the opportunity to do a master's in global population health in the London School of Economics. So that was a very interesting combination of kind of more traditionally, I guess, hard sciences coming from my background into more social sciences in my master's, looking at um, global population health with a health policy focus and uh, focus on health financing as well, um, which led me into the internship at the WHO um, where I worked with the assistive technology team. Um, I think currently where I'm hoping on going with my career is, um, com is, is working kind of in the intersection of health policy, public health, and clinical care, um, while I, get, I think trying to understand the value of inclusive technology um, in improving overall health outcomes. And then Bonnie shared her background with us. 
Uh, really, the path is one that was not really planned. I had received my master's in law degree upstate in Albany. I always knew I wanted to work for the government, so I worked at state government and then came to went to came down to Washington D.C. and I had a, a presidential management fellowship and I worked at the Department of Defense. And while I was there, I was working in the International and Comparative Law Office. And I went with one of my mentors to a meeting, which was talking about strategic arm reduction issues. And it was the first time that I ever had any exposure really to weapons of mass destruction issues. So once I went to that meeting, I fell in love with that issue. I said, this is great. I want to work on these these type of discussions. But to really work on those issues full time, you had to go to a place called the Arms Control Disarmament Agency or ACTA, A-C-D-A, which does not exist anymore. It folded into State Department in 19, about 1999 timeframe. But that's where I went because I wanted to really focus on that and to be the lawyer of a delegation that's negotiating a treaty on arms control or nonproliferation or even some areas of conventional weapons, you had to be at that agency. So that's where I went. As soon as I fell in love with the issue, I went there. And that's what I've been doing the rest of my life. And I went back to school and got gotten a few degrees on the issues, and I was fortunate to be appointed in 2009 uh, as an ambassador at State Department, and my focus was on threat reduction, and I was a coordinator for threat reduction programs, not only within the U.S., but also internationally. It's interesting because um, very very often I I do these, I, I talk to young people, and one of the things I do tell them is that, you know, always leave yourself a little open to possibilities and what can happen. Um, for example, I always knew I wanted to work in Washington, D.C., and I've always wanted that. My thing was work in Washington, live in Virginia. That's what I always wanted to do. And beyond that, I wasn't quite sure. That's that was that's what I wanted to do. So I was always kind of open to what exactly I would do when I got to Washington, even though you know I had I had my law degree and I had my master's in public administration. So I knew I had some kind of parameters. But beyond that, I didn't have any. And so I was ripe to fall in love with something exciting, and that happened to be, you know, I was thinking about it. I couldn't really think about what I wanted, and it was almost like that was ordained for me to fall right into this area of works. Claire also had a really interesting path to get to the position she now has. I, I decided to work in this field, and I did not decide to work in this field at the same time. So the way it started was enhanced curiosity without actually knowing it was enhanced curiosity. So I was at school, I was in high school, I was 15, I didn't know what I wanted, what I wanted to do later on. I was working hard to have good marks and yet having intrinsic questions. There was uh, always these questions like, yeah, there are three laws of Newton's, but wh- why not four? And so, so I was always these basic questions and I was never happy with this. And luckily my mom talked to another mom and knew and learned about these scientific work camps. So when I was 15 in the summer, I landed in, in the middle of nowhere in France, uh, talking math and physics until 3 a.m. with some people of my age also fascinated by this question. And then I realized, okay, it's possible to be interested by what we learn at school, the way some are interested by soccer or horse riding and stuff. And then I went into an engineering school of applied physics. That was something that I would make me an engineer and uh, and my parents were kind of pushing me in that direction so that after five years I will have some some degree so that I would ensure a living. I did an Erasmus program seven months where I was uh, working at DESI in the Zoyton campus. It was in 2009. I was a fourth year student in this five-year engineering program and at that time I was basically 
doing my training as an engineer and taking the classes actually at uh, Humboldt University on particle physics and and trying to basically uh, ramp up and, and and learn new stuff and and I adored this the idea of being in a theory that is fascinatingly precise and yet not done yet there are some caveats and the caveat this is really being at the cliff of knowledge where you stand on the cliff and what's below you is what we don't know yet so I like that thing and I realized okay I want to continue in this it's I was doing the electronics and, and I was working downstairs. And then when I was going upstairs, I was talking to the experimental physicist. And I remember that moment where I was seeing very nice uh, plots on the screen of one. And I was asking him, uh, oh, wow, that's what you do with the data. How, how are the data? What, what, I, what type of files do you get? And how do you make these things? And he looked at me. He was busy. He looked at me and he said, well, OK, for this, you need to do a PhD, OK? And I don't know if that guy realized that I really took this saying very like uh, literally because then going back to my engineering school I finished the my degree um, not with a master as everyone was was thinking I would I would do but with uh, just the instrumentation specialty just very technical because I knew that then after graduating I would just do another degree mostly on fundamental science and uh um, that engineering school requires us to spend the last semester as a, doing an internship, like to be in a company or in a research lab, or, but just there is no lecture. We had to do, a, we have to, to work. And I wanted to discover North America and I applied for some stuff and I found Triumph, the national laboratory in Canada for particle physics and nuclear physics. And uh, some people uh, responded to, to my uh, cover letter and said, we, we have some work to do that uh, your, your profile is interesting as an instrumentation engineer and it will be on atlas so and i got this internship that was supposed to be five months in canada but yet i just entered into the collaboration of atlas got myself known and my supervisor uh after the second month told me if you're interested in particle physics you should consider studying in the university of victoria and that was his university. He was affiliated with this uh, institution. And I went a prospective student there. I discovered the team. And as I knew some of the people already, uh, I decided to jump in and uh, sign in for this PhD offer. So I was finishing a five-year engineering degree and I was going for five years more. And uh, in between, I did uh, lectures. I'd ramp up to particle for, for being like, uh, um, for doing a master in particle physics. And then I uh, went to CERN and in the middle of it for a, my duty service, because if we want to be an author of the Atlas collaboration, we have to do a a qualification task, it's called, where we have to work a bit on the detector. The detector is a big baby requiring a lot of babysitting. And I was part of the data taking in 2012, the very same data that served for, for the discovery of the Higgs boson. And then I went back, it was 2013, and I finished and completed my PhD in 2016. And then applied for jobs and got the DESI Fellowship, which is a nice program where basically you can choose whatever you want to do. And as soon as I arrived in Hamburg and I discovered all the lab facility downstairs to work on Atlas Upgrade again, I voted for staying in the Atlas collaboration and then joining this analysis team looking for the Higgs boson. And then I continue my work on the on the upgrade, trying to, um, to make sure things are smooth and the, this tracker is going to be produced. And Amy walked us through her path as well. 
Well, uh, initially I studied Spanish, then French, then Russian. And so my initial uh, career objective was maybe to be an interpreter. Then I thought about being an ambassador. And then as I came to D.C. with my language skills and got my initial jobs, uh, I, I clearly decided, oh, no, I don't want to be the person in between the two important people interpreting in, from one language to another. I want to be the person actually making policy maneuvers. Um, and I want those maneuvers to be for the betterment of mankind. And that's how I transitioned over into the national security arena. Again, first as a defense contractor and then really started spreading my wings when I joined the Henry L. Stimson Center and began publishing research with, uh, with policy points. Initially, the, the pieces focused on the Chemical Weapons Convention, how to uh, make sure that we got to a treaty that was as strong as possible and technically feasible to implement. And this is, again, where I started working with the chemists and the people who not only make the weapons, but were charged with destroying the weapons in the United States, the people who make the verification technologies. So I was doing a lot of work with the Army and its technical experts, as well as with the national laboratories in the United States. And gradually, this spread uh, into the international arena. I started doing a lot of work overseas. So now that we know a little bit more about what these women do and how they got to where they are. We have some questions about how their identity as women affects their experiences working in STEM. And just a reminder, STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. So we start off with Alice. Reflecting on how I found myself in STEM, the thing that really stuck out to me is how early on women, traditional women roles and traditional men roles are categorized in education. And so I, as a kid growing up, you know, I computer sciences was kind of off the radar for me because it was very like a, a male's role and not something that I actively engaged in as a result. And I think moving more into, you know, my undergraduate in microbiology and immunology, even within sciences, there is a gender difference in people choosing life sciences as well as people choosing more material sciences like engineering or physics. And so I think for me, I guess my experience within STEM is this realization that there is already a difference in traditional career paths based on gender and and then while working in STEM as well, because of that traditional male dominant role, I found it challenging often to find key or a lot of female mentors. There are some really, really great female mentors out there. And I think that the environment is changing. But I think generally, there is still a lack of mentorship as a result of the traditional gender roles that are within STEM. Bonnie also talked about her identity as a woman and as a Black woman, and how that affected her experience in the field? Um, well, for a long time, I mean, I was um, one of very few women of color in the field. I mean, when I entered the field in the early 90s, there were women, not that many. There were, there were a few here and there in the area of, of, of arms control. And uh, my first delegation overseas, we had a woman who was in a very high-level role. And so when I entered the field, there were there were a few scattered, but not that many. And particularly when we were working overseas, most other countries didn't have any on their delegations. Um, but I could at least, you know point to one or two who were in a professional role. Foreign service officers, of course, were also there. Um, and the, there were very few people of color or women of color. I mean, I was, I think I was the only professional woman of color in my 
delegation. That was true for quite a while. Whether I worked on conventional weapons or during the nuclear weapon phase and the biological weapons phase and the chemical weapons phase, I was only I was only the woman of only woman of color. So it was, you know, so that the way that affected me, well, um, you know, it's 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 the you know usual ways in which you know you try to prove yourself more, you feel, you know, you have to work twice as hard and you know, and I was also also very young uh, at the time, so I was very young in a, in a in a field that was very male dominated, male white, male dominated, older establishment uh, that I was in. But I was also the lawyer for the delegation, so I also had a, a pretty prominent position uh, at that time. And this is to several delegations. So I guess I mean I think what it did was it made me obviously work harder because I felt like I had to prove myself more, and also recognize that since I was a lawyer, I was going to be called on to do things on a regular basis. And I was representing the ambassador and the delegation in many different aspects. So that put me in the front and that made me say, well, I, as much as I may want to sit here and be nervous <laughs> and feel like I'm the other, I don't have time for that because I got to get the job done. And they're going to rely on me as the lawyer to be able to answer questions. So it was good in the sense that it forced me to not sit back and be nervous. It forced me to not be able to feel, to spend time um, second guessing myself because I really didn't have time for that. Um, I had to go and do a job. So it was actually a good way of dealing with a with which probably would be a normally difficult situation. Amy had a lot of really interesting stories to share about her identity as a woman and the way that that impacts her work. And actually, we really struggled to cut down the number of stories that she had. Here, we're going to have a couple throughout the episode, and so here's one to start us off. Well, I'm delighted that you're asking that because although I may seem like not the right person to be in this discussion. At the time at which I entered the field, I can tell you that at the defense contractor's office where I worked, there were roughly 150 professionals, and I was one of two professional women. Three. One who was the chief editor for the publications that we wrote. And as I transitioned into the nonprofit world, I remember the first time that I went to a big meeting. It was at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. I looked around. There were 250 people there approximately and there were three women. So I am came of age, so to speak, as a working professional, being vastly outnumbered gender-wise. And I very clearly remember the first time it dawned on me that it wasn't necessarily going to be an easy ride. When I was at the defense contractor, I can recall, first of all, I got a contract in the door that allowed my boss, who was a retired two-star general, to hire retiring colonel. In those staff meetings, I can remember always coming in prepared because I was aware that I needed to work my hardest and do my best. That's just the way I am. And as um, the general would ask for suggestions about how we said we should do something, I would pop an idea out on the table. And routinely, the first couple of times, the guys around me would shoot it down. And I'm like going, what? what? And then it dawned on me toward the end of the meeting, one of the guys would put my idea back out on the table, except for it would be phrased differently. And I would just sit there flabbergasted. After one or two times around this mulberry bush where my idea wasn't recognized and supported as it was when it was suggested by a man, I decided I was going to call it what it was. And the next time that happened in a staff meeting, I simply piped up and said, gee, that's a great idea. 
just as it was when I first stated it X minutes ago. I remember very clearly the first time I had heard of an organization called WISE, Women in International Security. And I turned up in a meeting and all of a sudden there I was in a room with other women in the field. We were so far in few in between in government offices, and uh, there certainly weren't very many women in my particular company, but this organization was just getting started, and I just remember just feeling like a weight was lifted from my shoulders, and I could have conversations with these women unlike anything that I could certainly attempt with the men who were surrounding me. I mean, I was so conscious of wanting to be taken seriously for my brains and my capabilities that I essentially dressed like a nun <laughs> with things covered to my uh, knees, to my throat, to uh, my wrists. I, I didn't wear anything that most women today would not even take a second thought to wear because I didn't want to give a man any excuse not to consider me as anything other than a professional colleague. And yet still that nonsense happened as well. And I'm talking about physical sexual harassment on the job. Finally, Claire had some comments she wanted to share about how her identity as a woman affected or didn't affect her experience as a STEM practitioner. The fact that there aren't many women in STEM is not really where the problem lies. The problem lies when, if, if women are prevented from doing what they want to do because of bad cultural um, templates or, or, or a, a bias uh, right at childhood, for example. Um, they could be in a room... Uh, 25% women, and, and if uh, the society was uh, equal and the, the, if the women had equity, uh, that would be just 25% women in the room. Where, where it's, it's not okay is if it is where women are discouraged to do what they want to do just because they are women. And it also goes the other way. Uh, I, I would be as, uh, as concerned if they are uh, jobs that are meant for girls and men are discouraged to do them because they are men. I see it as very symmetric. When it comes to STEM, yes, uh, women are less numerous and then it's not a monolith. It's very, very depending on the field. And even within my collaboration, I mentioned before subgroup, they are subgroups where we have... 40% women and then other subgroups with another task, another type of uh, scientific activity where there are much less women up to like uh, four, four or five percent. So it really, really varies between the groups. And I would say that even if we are less numerous, I've never really felt myself um, diminished or degraded. I felt actually an, an, an enormous support from all my colleagues, uh, males and females, because people in high energy physics, most of the people, and I'm talking about, sorry, experimental high energy physics, which is where I am, um, I felt myself welcome and supported uh, by open-minded people and people understanding that we are all equals. So another thing that we talked about when we were talking about this episode and conceiving of kind of what it was going to look like, what we wanted to talk about, what we wanted to cover was the idea that STEM fields can be rather notorious for more blatant sexism than other fields. And as professional women, we know that sexism permeates 
every field and every profession, but I think STEM has, rightly or wrongly, a reputation for being worse and more blatant and more obvious and upfront and just kind of terrible. So we asked the women we spoke to if there were strategies they used to establish themselves in this field, in a new office or on a new team. We asked how they deal with the particular kinds of discrimination that someone working in STEM might face. And we asked them to offer some tactics for someone less senior to address discrimination or sexism they might encounter. To start off, we're going to hear from Bonnie about the tactics she used when she was establishing herself in this field. I, I think one of the best things to do is, is, is one, is to recognize the situation that one is in and to realize um, that this is this is a situation where, let's say, women are not as prominent or women are not as um, pushed forward or the stigmas out there. And just recognize what it is um, from the very beginning. Um, and then, you know, at that point, you just... For me, it's just doing what I have to do or just um, recognizing that it is a situation where you may have to um, do twice as much to be recognized. Um, and but also, you know, meeting things head on. And when, you know, and I know it's probably more difficult for young women in the field because you don't yet have the confidence. But, you know, when you're when you're when when you are, um, you know, pushback or or made to feel like you're not as good to remind yourself and believe in yourself that you are and many times women will get to a, get to a, a pretty successful level even at a young age and still doubt themselves even though they're sitting right next to the male counterpart um, or even though their grades are just as good but still they'll say I'm not as good because society has filled you it's filled women with so much of this belief that they're not, that you have to constantly be fighting against that. But when you recognize what it is, it's a little easier to fight against it because then it's, when you get past the cultural things that have made you think that, then you start to be able to separate it out. And you start to be able to say, well, let's see, I'm sitting right next to you, so I must be as good as you are. And I'm probably better because I had to work twice as hard. So I'm going to go ahead and do what I need to do because I, I understand where that's coming from. And I understand why I think that. And I understand why I've been conditioned to think that. It takes time to do that. And so I recognize that as a young person, it's a little harder, but the longer you do that, the easier it gets because um, you start to realize that you're not the one that has the problem, that it's the other person. And it's not it's the society that's made you think a certain way. And so when you when you recognize that you're a little more able, I think, to tackle problems, you get away from the way your mind's been colonized to think a certain way. Alice also discussed how she felt perceptions about femininity and womanhood shaped her field. I think as a female, there are general uh, expectations of what a feminine role is, um, one being that she doesn't speak out very uh, often or isn't um, confrontational. She isn't quote unquote aggressive or angry or necessarily assertive. Um, and I think for me growing up, that's definitely with, combined with my personality, um, assertiveness and being confrontational and being direct is not something that I learned by just necessarily being female and being me working in STEM. Um, and so I think 
that's something that I've really had to learn um, in in academics, but also in the workplace, is to be okay with being assertive, being okay with being confrontational, and being okay with speaking out um, when it's needed, even though I can tell that when I do speak out sometimes, the look that's given to me is very unexpected um, because they don't expect that coming from a female and particularly a petite Asian female as well. Amy also shared some tactics with us as well as another story. There are things that not only I figured out how to do, and I think every woman handles these issues differently, um, depending upon how senior she is, what her natural inclinations are, um, and, and who it is she's dealing with. I mean, I've had conversations with women since where, um, actually is in Geneva, uh, a, another colleague of mine who's a few years older and I were having dinner with three other younger professionals in the field and this subject came up and um, this other woman and I started telling a few war stories and I remember very clearly um, a German uh, colleague of ours just saying, well, I would have hauled off and slapped him. And um, had I done that, at that time in my career, the reverberations would have been 100% negative. Not only with the person who had mistreated me, but also because I was dealing with, uh, you know, classified information that would have gone, you know, on security reports, hey. And if you're the younger woman surrounded by older, more experienced men, just how will this be evaluated? So all that had to calculate into how I handled myself on the job in the early years. Again, you can find ways to communicate these things and give people a face-saving way out. But it takes a lot of composure and restraint. And anybody who needs a model for that can look to Anita Hill <laughs> and, and, and talk with the older women, perhaps in your, in, in your work setting, and ask them how they handled these things. To have somebody to talk to on the job, I think, is really important. And now, in most situations, human relations departments our human resources departments are supposed to handle these things. But at the time when I was a young woman working, those options weren't necessarily available to me. The HR department for the company I was working for was in California. I think that it's really important that we talk about the variety of ways women have to deal with sexism they encounter and the fact that there is no right way to react to a sexist incident or to continued sexual harassment or even just a general atmosphere that tells you you as a woman are worth less than your male colleagues. I think in a lot of conversations about this issue, people will get very sort of self-righteous and say, you know, there's only one good way to handle it or there's only one acceptable way to handle it or it has to be handled in such and such a way or you're letting every other woman who's ever experienced this down. And it's really important to me that we are gentle both with ourselves and with other people. And we realize that there is no one other than the person operating in that situation who can tell you what the best option is and what the sum total of constraints they're experiencing is. And so even when we're thinking about situations where we don't 
particularly love our reaction and maybe we feel like we let down like feminism or we've really hurt like the cause of like professional women in male dominated fields it's so important to me that we realize that what we feel capable of in terms of a reaction whatever makes us feel safest whatever keeps us in the best possible position is the appropriate reaction and there's just absolutely no way for anyone outside of that situation to know what we should have done or what we could have done and I think that as someone outside the situation and as the person in the situation in both instances you need to have a lot of compassion. Ashley I really could not have said that better myself. The the responses to sexism, the responses to sexual harassment really range from kind of the Me Too movement, right, where we're, we're calling men out, we're getting them fired, we're getting them demoted, etc., to, to the other side of the spectrum, which is really trying to protect ourselves, to create the, the highest amount of protection in a given situation. And a lot of times that that means not necessarily calling that person out publicly. And so I think it's your, your comment is so important that we, we acknowledge that there, there really is a range of appropriate uh, reactions and, and responses and that they really depend on the woman herself. I have a very good friend who likes to remind me, no girl-on-girl violence. And that means that we don't get to judge the actions of the women around us because we aren't in their shoes. Moving on, given the, the complexities of being a woman in, in this field, we wanted to know what advice these women had. How, how can we best navigate the STEM field? How best can we navigate foreign policy? So Alice started us off. I think one of my biggest advice would be empowering each other. Um, stay optimistic. And also, I, I'd like to think that things are slowly changing. It may not necessarily be as rapid as I'd like to see it, but I think that things are slowly changing in the right direction. And so for anyone who's interested in STEM and are female, stay persistent, stay motivated, stay optimistic and empower each other. But I think the biggest facilitating aspects would be to also encourage male males who are supportive of gender parity as well. And I think in, in encouraging them and embracing them into these conversations as well will help broaden the community and, and, and help move the gender parity gap um, maybe a little bit closer as well. Bonnie had some excellent advice that I will immediately be implementing in my own life. One thing that I always I, I have always done is to see where I want to be, let's say five or ten years from now, and then go back and think about how do I get there. And then kind of develop a plan for how to get there. And I would look at and my references, my research would be other people. Let's say I see a person who's in a job that I think I would like to have. I would actually research, I would actually check out their resume. And I would look at what did they do to get there? What education did they have? What kind of jobs did they have? For more than one person. Um, and so since it's a longer term goal, it gave me time to put things where they would need to be for me to get there. And Claire shared some advice with us as well. I will tell them to follow their interests. I will tell them that if they start to feel a bit uncomfortable by the idea of not knowing, this is a good start. <laughs> so that they will just look up and search and, and, and feed themselves. It's it's a sort of food. It's a sort of a psychological food of, of gathering knowledge and being thirsty for, for knowing more. So following the interest is perhaps uh, what they should do and not worry too much about uh, the things that are 
uh, there on the outskirt of their interest. If I had known all the difficulty it is to become a physicist when I first got interested into physics, perhaps I would not even have started. It's just because I had some interest. I was like, oh, for the moment I will do this. Okay. And, and um, not because I was seeing things short term, but I was just not giving too much computation of the carrier patterns and so just just staying at the interest level. I want to know that. So here with this contract, I would be able to know that. So this is why I would would say not to worry too much about how competitive a field is. And so just just focus on on, uh, what brings fun and what what is uh, nice to just investigate on. Amy also had some great advice for taking care of yourself when you're facing a sexist work environment. In all candor, I ran a lot. Um, My outlet was exercise. I did a lot of running. I ran a marathon uh, at about that period of time when I was uh, working at the defense contractor and going to school at night. That's how I let it out because the meetings of WISE where I could talk with women were far and few in between and because I was fairly isolated as one of, you know, just a handful of women. As I started rising through the ranks, when I became a senior associate at the Stimson Center, I had projects where I would hire research assistants. Now, I hired according to capabilities, always have, always will. But with the young women that were beginning to come into the field, that started to somewhat change the dynamics. And I always made sure that I spoke with them about these issues to say, listen, if somebody's ever given you the heebie-jeebies, come talk to me about it. So this is a foreign policy podcast, right? And maybe the past few questions you've been thinking, hmm, where'd the foreign policy go? One of the issues we really wanted to talk to these women about was how their jobs require international cooperation, or for some of them, facilitate cross-cultural communication and cooperation. A lot of these women have really interesting positions that sit at the intersection of these two fairly disparate ideas. And Bonnie had a really great description of how her job is the absolute epitome of the nexus between these two things. My whole career has been about that. It has been about working with different cultures and work with different perspectives. In fact, a lot of what I do, and even my job at State Department was called coordinator for threat reduction programs. So, you know, I've always been kind of a coordinator and collaborator. I did that when I was at the Ford Foundation for U.S. Foreign and Security Policy. And so I did a lot of integrating different perspectives on foreign policy. You know, I actually enjoy doing that. I enjoy finding areas of commonality among different perspectives and finding ways in which different sectors can work together. And the key is normally is, is finding something that everybody cares about or something that everybody wants to, uh, to prevent. And Claire also shared a little bit about her experience in the very, very international CERN. CERN stands for Centre Européen de Recherche Nucléaire, so European Center for Nuclear Research. Um, it's um, a name that has stayed, but it's now, I would say, a world-leading lab or the, the, the place of particle physics uh, on Earth, among others in, in, the, in the world. But this is really a, a, a huge hub for doing uh, particle physics and also nuclear physics. I know CERN from the particle physics side and from the big project called the Large Hadron Collider, which is an enormous 
particle accelerator that is near Geneva. It's a tunnel of 27 kilometers circumference that is 100 meters underground. And particles there are in accelerated and they collide at different spots. And where they collide, there is built around the collision point a huge detector, four big ones. One of them is ATLAS. And the ATLAS detector uh, that is physically uh, at CERN, still also the same on the LHC ring, so also 100 meter underground, um, has a collaboration of people that is spread all around the globe. There are many institutions, up to 165 institutions working for ATLAS. And uh, in total, it gathers a collaboration of 5,000 people that are dedicated for uh, make sure that this detector works, take data, makes nice physics analysis and nice publications, and also work for the future atlas that is going to um, take um, collisions in 2026, for example, or the, the collisions are going to be um, enhanced. We were really curious, talking to these women, what challenges they thought were unique to the STEM field. And so we asked them, is there something that you think might be misunderstood about your work or the field that you work in? Alice gave us a great answer. So I have a life sciences background um, in microbiology and immunology. And life sciences within STEM is traditionally more female dominated um, or female oriented than other areas of STEM like engineering and maths and um, maybe more material sciences as well. I would say a current misconception or challenge within life sciences as well, is that because it is perceived to be more gender equal and female dominated, that the challenges of women working in STEM no longer exist. And I would like to say that it does still. It's maybe less uh, pervasive than what you would see in engineering and technology. Um, but I would say in general, within policy, within um Within STEM, irrespective of whether or not that particular area in policy or that particular area in STEM is more female dominated, the challenges still exist and it can often be overlooked as a result of that perception of it being more gender equal. And finally, as usual, we were really curious about what gives these women hope in the field. What do they look forward to coming in the future? Alice started us off. I think what gives me hope and excitement in this field is seeing really kick women working in STEM and working in leadership roles. It gives me a lot of inspiration and it gives me a lot of hope as well. And I think realizing just how supportive that community is, is also very encouraging. So reaching out to, you know, women that work in STEM and being able to connect so personally on challenges that women face often in STEM is in a way a little bit disheartening because there are these challenges, but in a way very nourishing as well because you have a very strong supportive network as well. We also asked the women we spoke to what their favorite thing was about their work. What gets them out of bed in the morning? And a corollary to that, what's their least favorite thing about their work? Or what keeps them in bed those extra five minutes and makes them hit snooze the second time around? Bonnie had a really fun set of answers to this question. What gets me out of bed is a new day and a new opportunity to look at whatever I was dealing with the day before with a new perspective. I tend to wake up thinking, I'm a morning person, first of all. So I always get up in a positive, open ready to go away. As long as I get a cup of coffee, I'm fine. Um, at some point, I have to get a cup of coffee. But I kind of wake up all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. You know? So I always wake up thinking, um, 
I can have a new perspective or, you know, I, and I automatically think uh, when I wake up, I automatically have a different way of thinking about something. So um, I like I like new ways of looking at challenges. Uh, so that kind of what gets me going. And so it's not so much a topic as much as a perspective and outlook about the challenges. What keeps me in bed is the things that I know are going to be more difficult to find a solution to. So instead of jumping up and being, okay, I'm ready to go, I may lay there a little longer and say, wow, that's a difficult one to deal with. I, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this issue. I'm not going to deal with that issue. So, you know, so a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things are difficult to answer, but as long as you can figure out what the strategy could be to get to the answer. And if I don't have a strategy, then that'll keep me in bed frustrated because I don't have a strategy and I can't figure one out. I think that this episode was really important for us because we often focus on careers that are explicitly and obviously about foreign policy. And siloing ourselves as a podcast, ourselves as an organization off like that is really problematic. But I also think that it doesn't fully encapsulate the range of things that are foreign policy jobs, ultimately, regardless of whether, you know, you will find them on a foreign policy job site. I think it's really important to realize that good foreign policy making relies on the expertise of a lot of people who aren't necessarily foreign policy practitioners in the strictest sense. Because it's utterly ridiculous, if you if you phrase it at its most sort of basic, it's utterly ridiculous to say, oh, we're going to make nuclear foreign policy without any nuclear scientists or nuclear weapons experts. No one would do that because everyone acknowledges that expertise is important. And I know that the idea of expertise being important has come under fire a little bit recently from various corners, and that's that's an issue. But I think there's just no real substantial argument against the importance of people who know what they're talking about. And so I think this episode is really important to highlight that there are people who know what they're talking about in in two directions, if you will. You know, there are people who have quite a lot of scientific expertise and also people who want to be involved in foreign policy making. So you don't have to restrict yourself to just one or the other if these are things that you're interested in jointly. And I think it's important to introduce the idea to people who maybe have never even considered combining their interests in this way. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, wow, how cool, I never thought I could do that. Here are four women who have these great careers that combine their scientific knowledge and their foreign policy expertise, and you can do that too. That is a pathway that is open to you. Yeah, I felt really inspired actually by this episode, really particularly inspired, because I don't know that, not that podcasts existed, you know, 50 years ago, but I don't know that we could have had these kinds of conversations and, and to see how far women have come, uh, particularly in the STEM field, particularly when we're not necessarily encouraged to go and train in these ways and in our childhood. I just felt really inspired about the opportunities that are open. Like you were saying, Yes, there are so many opportunities at the intersection of STEM and and at foreign policy. It's really heartening to me to know that that exists. And we want to hear what you think about this as well. We want this to be a conversation. So please do come talk to us on the internet. We will be back at the end of December with our next episode. It's going to be actually a bit of a special episode on professional development. So we'll be talking to different organizations, 
that have advice for you about your career. So in the meantime, we're on Twitter at at women in FP. Also, we're on Instagram. We're doing videos every weekend for the next few months. If you really want to see my face, I am on Instagram right now. Um, <laughs> so each women in foreign policy team member is introducing themselves. So definitely go and check that out. And then my personal Twitter is at Annika EP. Yeah, the videos are looking really cool. And like she said, Annika's is already up. You guys will get to see mine in December. So prepare yourselves. We really want to hear from you about what you thought about this episode, what you think about our previous episodes, what you think about the podcast in general, anything you'd like to hear in upcoming episodes or themes that you would like to suggest, people you want us to talk to, anything like that. If you've got thoughts that you don't want to tweet at us, we also love emails. You can find contact information for all of us on the Women in Foreign Policy website. I am on Twitter at Vaguely Academic. That's my personal Twitter handle. And if you like the work we're doing, please consider supporting us via PayPal at lmgoulet, that's the letter L, the letter M, G-O-U-L-E-T, or on Patreon at Women in Foreign Policy. Thank you so much for listening and for being here this month. Share it with everyone you know, and then we will see you next month. Bye! Bye!